2: To get by Benning. Darnell Nurse left it in the corner, gets up center! Perry! Score! Corey Perry! Oh, able to shake away from
3: Solani. It's given away to Solanee!
2: All right, we're back. We got a NA, national reporter and NHL draft writer from The Athletic, Scott Wheeler, back on the show. Thanks for coming back, Scott. Glad to know we uh, we didn't scare you away the last time we had you on.
3: <laughs> yeah, no sweat. Happy to be on.
2: Well, you know, recap of, uh, I guess, uh, an extremely busy month for you. Uh, mm-hmm. First time the tournament was held in the Czech Republic, the World Juniors, that is, since 2008 uh, when Canada won gold. I uh, repeated that again this year. How did you find it there? How how was it being in the Czech Republic for for almost 3 to 4 weeks?
3: Uh it, it was a little bit of a mixed bag for me personally. I actually uh, partially tore my knee on day 3 when I was there. Um so I spent the the couple of weeks hobbled and that made it a little bit more complicated as a as a trip and a little bit more complicated, certainly to do my job while I was there. Um, but otherwise, I mean, the Czech Republic's great. It's the, the fans were unbelievable. That's one of the, the, particularly the games where the national Czech team was, uh, involved that first game that they played where, um, they upset the Russians uh, to open the tournament. And then a couple of the other games that they were involved in, including the semifinal where they lost five, nothing to Sweden. Um, the the fans were just unbelievable like it was an electric atmosphere it was about 8500 capacity at Ostrava arena and it was as loud as any 20,000 plus hockey game i've ever attended so um that part of it was great the tournament was great the hockey was excellent um there were some surprises along the way it kind of had all of the elements that you'd you'd hope for out of a world juniors ostrava as a place is a little bit weird it's it's uh kind of a a quiet, sort of run-down, small city. I I mean, it's a big city as far as the Czech Republic goes, but um, it's a little bit of a quiet, kind of sleepy town. So it was... Uh, Weird to have them hosted because the arena felt a lot different than the city did so uh, it it was also extremely hard for people to get to I know there was a lot of travel issues for some of the teams and uh, media and, and, and that kind of thing just because there is no commercial airport there so people were going into Poland to go to Katowice or they were going to uh, Austria through Vienna and, or, or obviously through Prague and then taking three or four hour trains to get there. So it, it was just a, a unique experience. I've been to a number of World Juniors, but only the ones in North America, whether that's Buffalo or Toronto or Montreal. And obviously next year is Edmonton and Red Deer. And those are run like kind of fine tuned machines. And, and this was maybe not quite like that, but uh, it, it's still for me that my favorite sort of hockey event on the calendar.
2: You, you know, you say it, it's a mixed bag, and I think you know from what from watching from home. I, th- I think everyone could see how excited the fans were. I, I think the one thing that stuck with everybody, and, and the one thing you, the last thing you probably want to hear now, but but how tired are you of this song?
3: <laughs> oh man! I said on day one when we were there, uh, this is this is going to get get old really quickly. There were a number of. <laughs> There were a number of jingles that they, they had queued up. The, the penalty one kind of took on a life of its own. Um, but they also had a, a, like an anthem for the tournament, and they actually had the band that, that created this song for the tournament play it in this sort of opening ceremonies ahead of it all getting started. And that song got played just a ridiculous amount <laughs> while they were there. So that and uh, Canada's goal song, which was Hey Baby, uh, you, you you get you get tired of them after about the third or fourth time. What alone the fiftieth, sixtieth, seventieth time?
2: Especially when you pick something like uh, taking a minor penalty or any penalty, is something <laughs> something that happened way more often than you would expect at this tournament, especially with the officiating, it, it became something that we we all heard probably too too much uh, for <laughs> it was like three or four times a period at times. So.
3: Yeah, and it's funny to see the guys going to the box, especially in those games where the Czech Republic was involved and the fans are losing their mind and everybody's booing and everybody's sort of up in arms and then the music just comes on and it's like, how do we how do we take these games seriously anymore?
1: It was so much better suited for the Corey Perry walk of shame. <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah, exactly.
2: All right, well, we got to get to the hockey here and especially that gold medal game. Where does that comeback for Canada, I mean, being down 3-1 with 11 minutes to go, where does that rank for you in terms of just gold medal games and comeback games and games for Canada to to win gold? I mean, just a, a ridiculous fight back for the Canadians.
3: Yeah, and that was one of the better games live that I've honestly ever seen. But it, it, honestly, when I think back to the World Juniors, that that may not even be in my lifetime. I'm 25, and that may not even be... a I don't know, a top five World Juniors game. <laughs> yeah. Like, there's just been so many. It seems like this tournament in particular, uh, and that isn't to say that we haven't had great Olympic moments. Obviously, we have. But the Olympics, particularly the last Olympics that had NHL participation, Canada kind of just lulled everyone through the tournament and, and slow played it. And there was never really a sense that Canada... Uh, was in jeopardy or that there, the games were going to give and take and mike babcock had that team playing a style that was kind of just like okay let's shut it let's get a couple of goals here and then let's shut it down whereas the world juniors is a just a shit show from start to finish normally like you get uh the lead changes in basically every gold medal game there there's two or three lead changes i turned to uh, a fellow c- colleague chris peters who works at espn midway through the gold medal game and said like there's just no way this game ends like this. This is just the intensity is so much uh, there's the, these these are kids at the end of the day, and I think a lot of that can get forgotten is they've never played on a stage like this. It just creates such a volatile sort of pressure fueled situation the The collapses are sort of destined to happen. so uh, I, I'm not even sure that's a top five sort of gold medal game of the last ten, fifteen years for me, but it was still. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, just a brilliant game and, and sort of everything you hope for out of a hockey game with the lead changes and the drama of the penalty and the missed penalty call and the puck over the glass in the dying seconds and uh, just the fact that the stage had already been set with Russia, quite frankly, destroying the Canadians 6-0 in group play and the mm-hmm. rivalry that was there. So it, it really had everything you look for in, a, in an exciting hockey game.
2: Yeah, well, we we can't talk about that game without not talking about that missed penalty and the fact that the TSN camera played such a such a huge and integral role in, in Canada not going down to a two man advantage to Russia. Is that the the most Canadian way to I guess may, it didn't not win a game ever, but to have you know play a factor in the game?
3: Yeah, a little bit, and it's it's a tough one for me just because. There is a weird kind of relationship between TSN and the World Juniors where they're not only the broadcaster, but they're also a title sponsor and they invest huge money in the tournament. And uh, there's a stake there, obviously, for them to have Canva win and the the ratings and all of that is is at play. Um, But at the end of the day, the camera was there. From the start of the game, et cetera, et cetera. So, it, uh, I don't think it was a major, major issue. Um, but still, it, for for that to be arguably the the deciding factor in the game, uh, it, it, that's that's a, a tough way for it to go. And I'm sure nobody, whether that's the IAHF, the tournament organizers, or or even people at TSN, would have wanted that that to be. Uh, sort of such a major factor and and you mentioned how it would have been a two-man advantage but really it would have been a three-man advantage because yes. they had the net empty so uh, a six on three in that kind of a situation I'd almost bank on the Russian scoring there so it it, it was a, a bizarre moment and and one of those things that you just kind of have to shake your head at I think
1: lucky time for Canada for sure but talking about a couple a different a different player um Looking at uh, the World Juniors here, so it's always said that you shouldn't take this tournament too seriously when it comes to ranking prospects. But you've seen mm-hmm. a lot of people lately that just, you know, are, are jump ship on Quentin Byfield. What do you think about that?
3: Yeah, I, I honestly, I think it's quite frankly a little ridiculous. I wouldn't read too much into it at all. Uh, a year ago, Alexi Lafreniere was borderline unnoticeable at the World Juniors. He wasn't impressive at all. And Alexei is about ten months older than Quinton, so um, there, I mean he kind of had the tournament that Alexei had a year ago when Alexei was basically his age, and he played on the fourth line and he played eight to ten minutes a night. And for a player like him, who's uh, not only switching from center to wing to play at a, a different position, but also to the larger ice surface, and he's the youngest player on the team, and Uh, I don't think anybody should have had major expectations for Quinton to be a sort of dominant star level player in the tournament. And I think part of that and the, and the expectations that were on him was just a, how good he's been in Sudbury this year. Sudbury lost six in a row as soon as he left. Um, and, and B how good he was in the selection camp. He really, I mean, he started the tournament on a line, basically the team's second line with Dylan Cousins. And that was deserved. They were brilliant in the sort of pre-tournament exhibition play, both against the Canadian University uh, sports all-star team and later in their sort of pre-competition games against Switzerland and Finland. Um, But then once push came to shove, the coaching staff didn't really trust him. He wasn't playing on the power play. Uh, And it's just hard. So I honestly wouldn't read too much into Quinton's performance at all. I think he's an absolutely brilliant player. I think there are very few hockey players who are as young as he is. He is one of the younger players in the draft still who are as young as he is. And, as talented as he is. and my big concern with him, i I've watched him since he was fourteen years old. I did a story on him when he was fifteen playing minor hockey in Ontario. And my concern with him was always his skating, and his skating has come so far that there there's nothing in his game to dislike at this point. Like he's your your the the big center that every team covets. He can score, he can make plays as a passer. Uh, he's powerful now. He obviously has the size and the length, so I'm, I'm not worried about him whatsoever.
1: So, when talking about how to not take those performances too seriously, I mean, as Ducks fans, we got to talk to you about Trevor Zegers and, <laughs> you know, nine primary assists in five games. Is that impressive, or should we not read too much into that type of performance as well?
3: Oh, it's absolutely impressive. I, I always have argued with people, rightly or wrongly, that I think you can take more away from the players who, uh, in the tournament sort of rise and exceed expectations than you can from the ones who disappoint because there's more room for error in a tournament like this for star level players with big expectations to disappoint than there is for them to thrive. And by that, I mean that a lot of these kids are like a Quentin Byfield. A lot of these kids are asked to play limited roles. And I think that often gets lost for the casual viewer. The casual viewer will look at the performance of an Akil Thomas or a Quinton Byfield or these kids that they uh, they know of because they've put up a hundred points in junior, et cetera, et cetera, and they'll see that they had one point in seven games or whatever. And uh, I think that's where people can get really disappointed with a player's performance, and they probably shouldn't, just because roles and ice time I think often get overlooked in, in these kinds of tournaments. But when a player does exceed expectations, it's normally for a reason, and it's normally because amongst their peers they've elevated to a, to, to a sort of new level. And I think that's where a player like Trevor comes in, in particular because he, he wasn't the kind of player in this tournament who was gifted top minutes and a, and a sort of leading role from the get-go and sort of allowed uh, almost from day one to put up big points and sort of pick up points along the way against the weaker teams in the tournament and that kind of thing. Sometimes there are players who I think are – kind of unimpressive in the tournament who you'll look at them at the end of the tournament and they'll have eight points in six games. And it looks like they were one of the best players on their team, but five of their points were scored against Slovakia. Dylan cousins comes to mind as a perfect example of that. I didn't think he had a great tournament for Canada, but uh, he had a five-point game and against a really bad team, and that kind of inflated things. And I think what was so impressive about Trevor and what kind of should leave you with a lasting positive impression is that, A, he started in a very limited role. He was playing no minutes in those first two games. He had, obviously, several points in the first period of that second game where he'd only played, I think it was two minutes and 22 seconds, and he had two assists. And then midway through the game, he'd played like four and a half minutes, and he had four assists. And... Um, The game before that, obviously, he had two brilliant plays on limited fourth line minutes and kind of worked his way into that kind of a leading role by the end of the tournament. And he wasn't until the very last game of group play. He wasn't on uh, the top power play unit for the United States. So all of those things contributed to a set of circumstances where he shouldn't have had the kind of tournament that he did. And then he did anyways. So I think that is what... Was so special about it, and then obviously there was this sort of flash and and the wow factor of it all, which was the plays that he were making, he was making, and the and the points that he was picking up weren't the off the shin pad types. They weren't the rebound goal against a bad team or the empty netter. They were literally him manufacturing out of nothing uh, offense for his team. And, and by the end of the tournament, he was in on nine of their seventeen goals. So uh, it, it was. Truly the most impressive performance for me at the tournament. I think if they had not lost to Finland in the quarterfinals and if they'd gone deeper, that he probably would have won MVP um, or certainly been on the media all-star team at the very least. Um, ultimately, I, I think he was absolutely spectacular, and I think it was a, a real sort of coming-out party, if you can call it that for a player who already has his kind of pedigree
1: no oh, that's that's great to hear I'm sure all of us, all of us ducks fans love to hear that we're looking forward to seeing him here in Anaheim soon um kind of let's just stick with the ducks here now so Jacob Silver was named an all star for the first time in his career and uh was on pace until he recently got injured for close to 30 goals what kind of value do you think he could bring at the deadline do you think he could fish a, a first round pick we haven't seen that happen too often <sighs>
3: Absolutely. I think based off of where uh, maybe not first round pick, but certainly based off of where the market has has gone to in the last couple of years, I think we've seen o- some serious overpayments at the last two deadlines in particular players uh, like a Brian Boyle going for a second round pick. And um, there's just been a, a number of sort of depth role players that have garnered second round picks. And certainly Silverberg is more than that. Um and has proven to be more than that, and is is having an excellent year. And I believe he's had four or five straight 40-point years now. Um, You can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, he's he's now a a, a very good sort of top six winger. I don't think he's the kind of guy who's going to drive an offense or even drive a line, but uh, he can play on the power play. He can make plays. He's not old. Again, correct me if I'm wrong, but he's 28 or 29 at this point, right?
1: Yeah, he's 29.
3: Yeah, so there, there's a lot to like there. I, I would not be surprised if a first round pick is on the table as a, as a sort of piece for him. Uh, every team wants big, sort of powerful. And I know he's not tall, but he's a strong, sort of stocky guy. Uh, wingers who can who can sort of make plays and finish around the net, and he can certainly do that.
2: I got, uh, I guess, flamed or roasted on on Twitter for for bringing this up. And maybe it's because of the fan base. I kind of brought it up, too. But uh, I I thought he'd be a good fit for the Pittsburgh Penguins. And, And I think that part I was safe on. I think the second part here where I said, if what would it take to get a player like Kalen Addison in return and and this was right after his uh his performance with the World Juniors. Mm. Uh, is it safe to say Kaelen Addison is, is kind of untouchable in any potential trade if if Silverberg was to go to Pittsburgh? <sighs>
3: I'm not sure whether he's untouchable. I don't think uh, anyone, especially a player of his caliber, I mean, he's a fabulous prospect. I had him as a first round pick on my board in the early 20s, and he obviously went much later than that in the draft. I believe he went in the 60s. Um, but he's a, a phenomenal young player. Uh, I, the the thing with him that I would say, and, and I'm just in the process, I just actually finished writing uh, my Pittsburgh Penguins prospects ranking at, actually tomorrow on Monday. my. Uh, we're we're launching a series where I'm going to rank all 31 prospect pools and Pittsburgh because they're so weak is is sort of towards the bottom of that list so I've already completed theirs and um, I, I think part of what would what drives Kalen to particularly his value up in terms of his value to the Penguins and their reluctance from wanting to move on from him is just how thin their prospect pool is they've got in my opinion, four legitimate prospects between him and, and Philip Hollander and, um, uh, Pierre Olivier Joseph that like there, there are some, uh, intriguing players there. Um, Poulain is, was their pick last year. Who's a decent sort of potential middle six winger down the line. Um, so there is Nathan Laguerre is another player that comes to mind. There are, there's four or five guys there, but, uh, he's really the top prospect there, the clear cut top prospect there. And they, they, because of how often they've traded top picks and how late they've drafted in recent memory, haven't really been able to, to build out their prospect pool. And now their core is getting older and we're seeing injuries crop up and players like Kalen are just going to be more valuable to a team like Pittsburgh than they are to a team like Anaheim that has a much deeper pool of players to, to sort of mine in the next two or three years in terms of prospects. So uh, I suspect they'll want to hang on to him pretty tightly.
2: Yeah. I mean, Pitt, Pittsburgh in the past has, has been known to at least be open to that. But you've you, you got to think here it, it comes to a point that some of these guys, they they got to hold on to them. Um, on the topic a bit of the All-Star game, where we talked talking about Silverberg. Uh, he's no longer going now because of uh, the birth of his second child. What are your thoughts on on this format? Because Silverberg's now been replaced with Max Pacioretty, uh, and the Ducks seem to be the only team going into the All Star Game without a representative at the skills competition or at the game. What what are your thoughts on, on on this format and how it's come to this and 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 how we're you know we're dealing with issues like this now?
3: I don't like the format at all, especially as long as All Star Games are the kind of thing that are going to be used in. Hall of Fame consideration and when we talk about a player's bio at the end of their career you always see those graphics on TV where it says 11 time all star and whatnot and I I think that's been devalued in recent memory in most other sports it's 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 not driven by teams and driven by making sure that everybody has their representative to make sure that the fan bases of those teams tune into the All-Star game and the skills competition and that kind of thing. And I think the NHL kind of has its priorities backwards on that in terms of what the All-Star game should be about. And if there's six or seven teams every year that aren't represented because they didn't have a player that was probably worthy of of being an All-Star, then so be it. I think if you get the best players there that the average hockey fan is going to tune in. And I think otherwise you're not really getting the average hockey fan regardless, just because the all-star game is still very much a niche kind of thing for the NHL. So um, I'm fine with, uh, I I know ducks fans probably don't love it, but I'm fine with a a team like the ducks, not having a player there just because frankly, they they're not loaded with talent. There isn't an obvious candidate there that should be going to the all-star game over several of the players who were left off because their team already had one or other or two other players going. So Uh, In my opinion, the All-Star game should be just the best players. Uh, Obviously, mistakes will still happen, and that's the best players is still very much, especially in a sport as challenging to evaluate as hockey, still very much a difficult thing to get right. Uh, But I think there should be more of an effort to try and get it right than there is, rather than uh, sort of allowing every team. I mean, I cover the Leafs, and... And for a while, the the Leafs never had anyone. And it was kind of embarrassing that they were sending Leo Komarov to the All-Star game. So um, it's cyclical. Everybody will get their stars. I'm sure Trevor Zegers might be there someday. But for now, the Ducks don't really have a guy that that seems like an obvious candidate, right?
2: Yeah, I think you'd find most Ducks fans would be willing to agree with that. And I'm kind of along the same standpoint there, that the best players, no matter the team, should go to the All-Star game. But if you're the NHL right now and you're a proponent of having at least one from each team, mm. this is a really bad look Definitely. going into this All-Star game and having one team not represented. Like it, it And it's, you know, it, things come up, you know, Flory backs out, you have to have a goalie go, you're not going to have Malcolm Subban, so you've got to send Mark Strim, he's probably the best option there of the remaining goalies. Uh, but you know, not replacing Silverberg with Getzlaff and having just patch-ready Win the the uh, the last man in with with quotation marks around that there. You know, an easy problem to solve, and they, they've kind of put themselves in in a tough spot if they're trying to back this uh, this format that they're running
3: yeah and i think in every any other year you'd probably look at john gibson and say hey that's your guy that's your obvious choice but this obviously hasn't been in terms of john gibson's play hasn't been his his best year to date and um i mean i i voted for john gibson at number one on my vesna trophy sort of mid-season ballot last year and um he was on my all-star team last year when we vote for those things at the phwa and um he, i mean he's the kind of guy when you think of star level players with the ducks right now but uh, obviously this year hasn't really felt that the same way
1: no and so speaking of john gibson is there any cause for concern with the downturn of gibson's play this year or is it are people just being too hard on him i mean given the workload he's had with this ducks team that's like you said lacking some high-end talent
3: yeah i, I wouldn't read too much into it i I'm a firm believer that he's one of the five, maybe three best goalies in the world. And and this is probably more of a blip than anything. I mean, if you look at his track record, he's now got four or five seasons before this year where he was arguably one of the sort of two or three better goalies in the world. So uh, he'll be fine. The ducks team in front of him isn't obviously the greatest team in hockey either. So uh, a a lot of those things add up to a, a, a bad year and, Basically, every elite goalie goes through a bad season or two. Carey Price went through it. Uh, Braden Holtby went through it. Bobrovsky's going through it right now. Uh, Marc-Andre Fleury has certainly had the off year here or there. So um, it just happens once in a while. I mean, he's still in his mid-20s. He's still got probably four or five years of, of excellent hockey in front of him. So I wouldn't worry about it too much.
1: Yeah, that's what we kind of feel like too. Give the guy a break, let him have a bad season with you know, considering what he's had to deal with. But shifting back to the, the youngsters, uh, talking about Comtois, Max Jones, Sam Steele, and Troy Terry, do you think it's uh time to that the Ducks should maybe worry or fans should maybe worry a little about them not meeting exact expectations this season or just given the you know, the Ducks play overall, is this really not the time to label anything on them yet?
3: Yeah, I think it's early. They're all still young players. Comtois in particular is, is still, I believe he's 20. Um, so, you, I mean, you're looking at a group of 20, 21, 22-year-olds. Um, they're playing on a bad team. The, like These things are, are sort of part of the progression. I don't think that means that they aren't uh, sort of ready to be in the roles that they're in or that uh, it with a little bit of luck. They may have been having better seasons. Like there's, there's just so much that goes into it in terms of their actual skill sets and them as prospects. I really, really like Sam Steele. Uh, I've always uh, honestly been a little bit lower on Comtois and Terry than most scouts or most of sort of public sphere evaluators. Um, but Sam is a is a player. Sam is going to be a, a sort of very good second line player in the NHL, I think. Uh, Comtois and Terry, I think, may sort of be sort of more complimentary middle six kind of pieces. Uh, but between the three of them, I think they'll all be fine. I think they'll all be good NHL players and a part of that sort of next phase for the Ducks, whatever that looks like.
1: Yeah, there's just a lot of expectation uh, by Ducks fans here for sure about this. Like everyone was, you know, bringing Dallas Akins and, you know, bringing up the youth. He's, he's coached these guys. He knows these guys, you know, out with the old and with the new. But I think what people don't understand is like the amount of pressure and you know, the matchups these guys are playing night in and night out at the NHL level is just so much different.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a, it's a young sort of core group of, of players. Even, I mean, you go up and down the lineup. We, we talked about Jacob and obviously Ricard Raquel, like these, these guys aren't players who are in their mid thirties. Obviously you've still got the holdouts. You've still got Ryan Getzlaff kicking around, but by and large, you go up and down this sort of roster and the group of players who are coming in and you've got Max Jones and you've got Josh Mahura and um, you've got a, a sort of very solid, not sort of, top top end group of prospects but uh one of the better pools of prospects in hockey on the way and you've got obviously kids like zegris and braden tracy and blake McLaughlin and uh, Olivia olivier grew and like there, there is a number of uh, i really like henry thrun a lot so um th- there's there's options there they'll, they'll be all right
2: Looking at this roster as a whole, and, and we brought this question up last time we had you on the show, uh, the Ducks were predicted to have eighty point five points for this upcoming season, which would have put them fourth in the league. You you took the slight over on that. We we were maybe a little bit more ambitious, and, and we we took you know around the the eighty five to to ninety point range. I, are you surprised with just just how bad not the Ducks have been so far, but how all three California teams have struggled?
3: uh I, i'm maybe a little bit more surprised by the sharks i think everyone knew that the sharks were one of those teams that was going to take a step back i just didn't think between the talent that they have and a number of the young players that they incorporated and obviously you've still got couture you've still got eric carlson you've still got brent burns i thought they were going to be a better team than they are uh in, in terms of the ducks and the kings no i'm i'm not surprised i i certainly the kings always heading into this this season looked like they were going to be a bottom three team if, if you'd asked me for the bottom three teams at the start of the year i would have said um, la ottawa and detroit and I, I think new jersey has kind of snuck into that group and and surprised me a little bit but uh in terms of how bad they are as well but um th- those other three teams have kind of played out like you'd expect and then um the ducks have obviously been better than that but it's not uh, it's not like they're running away with it and and they're now in a position where they're starting to I'm sure look at the draft and, and sort of look at that core group of, of nine players at the top of the draft uh, in hopes that they get to they get a chance to pick one of those players because I do think for me and, and for most people there's a, a really strong group of nine and then a little bit of a drop off. so you, you want to be one of the teams that lands one of those players.
1: Well, you just made the perfect segue for us to hop to the 2020 draft. Uh, Just how good is Alexis Lafreniere? Does he make an immediate impact uh, for a team uh, going into next season?
3: Definitely. Definitely. I think if he can get his ankle right, um, obviously he had the knee flare up uh, at the World Juniors, but the knee, spine, of the ankle is the more serious issue. He's been battling uh, basically playing on a sprained ankle all season. He tapes it up before most games and, uh, if he can get all of that right and he can get healthy for the start of next season and have a good summer of training, uh, there's absolutely no reason he can't be a, an impact player in the NHL next year uh, right away. And and w- that's been hit or miss for a lot of t- sort of first overall, second overall picks in recent memory. When you look back at, at Nico Hichie and Nolan Patrick and even to Jack Hughes and Capocacco this year, these these kids haven't had the kind of immediate impact that you probably would have hoped that they would have I think uh, what makes Alexi different is, A, he's old for his age group. Um, he was almost eligible basically for ne- for last year's draft. Uh, so he's got nine, ten months on a lot of other prospects in this draft. And, and the other thing is he, he just looks like a man. Like uh, I don't know how familiar you guys are with Alexi, but uh, in in real life, Alexi is a stocky, thick, like.
2: Big, big, he big, strong He reminds me of uh, like Aaron Eckblad when Aaron Eckblad was in the CHL. Like, just how big of a guy he is compared to the other guys.
3: Yeah, and, and Eckblad had the height. Alexi doesn't have the height. Like, it's not like Alexi is 6'3", 6'4", like Quinton is. But if, he's he's just a strong, strong kid. And the biggest strength in his game has always been and will always be his ability to sort of protect the puck and and not get, o- get knocked off the puck. And that's a very sort of... Sidney Crosby, Nathan McKinnon quality to him is just his lower body and how strong he is on the puck. And despite not being 6'2, 6'3, 6'4, uh, he's just an ox out there and he can just always hang on to the puck. And uh, he's not the flashiest player in the world or the most talented first overall pick in the world, but he just looks like an NHL player. Uh, and I think that's going to help him sort of make that transition pretty easily.
2: Speaking of, of some of the older players for this upcoming draft, I think one of the more intriguing prospects for me is Marco Rossi uh, out of Ottawa. I mean, he's got a ridiculous, I think, 74 points in 32 games right now. He's leading the entire OHL as a draft-eligible player. Uh, in a league that also boasts like, Quentin Byfield, Cole Perfetti, Jamie Drinsdale. how does he stack up with those guys? Like, how, how high can this guy go?
3: I wouldn't rule it. Honestly, I think after you go Alexi and Quinton 1-2, I think the next tier from three to nine is, is pretty fluid. I think I could listen to arguments for any of those um, seven players to go in any of those slots. So I think the, he'll go no later than nine and as high as three or four. I think the problem with him in terms of the 3-4 conversation is that he is shorter, and I think rightly or wrongly, I would argue wrongly, that teams will knock him for that, especially because he plays the center position. But the thing with Marco, and and when we're talking about kids who are big and, and Alexi, Marco is on a completely different level in, in terms of that. I actually did a huge feature last year where I lived with Marco and his Billet family for a week and sort of wrote a big story on life as a CHL import player and what's it, what it was like for a kid from Austria to move to Ottawa. And uh, I spent a full six days with him and his billet parents. And his dad uh, was actually over through, through sort of with some buddies from Austria throughout the process. And I really got to know him and he is huge. So despite the fact that he's five, nine, he's already like 200 pounds. He's thick, he's stocky. And he's another kid who, unlike some of the other smaller players unlike kind of a Tim Stoitzel who's a little bit on the smaller end and a uh, Lucas Raymond who's a little bit on a small on the smaller end and certainly a Jamie Drysdale who's also on the smaller end particularly for a defenseman. Uh, I have absolutely no concerns about his, about Marco's size. And there have been questions about whether he's going to be a center or a winger at the NHL level. And I'm absolutely convinced he has all of the tools to be a center. He is, in my opinion, the best two way player in the OHL right now and maybe the best player in the OHL right now. Um, and and he's unbelievable. I think certainly his age is a factor in that and you have to consider that, but he was unbelievable in the playoffs last year when, uh, he was sort of on the younger end of what a player would look like for this draft class so uh he, he's got a track record at this point he does literally everything you want out of a player like there's he's the sort of perfect two-way player um so i love marco's game i think I, i'm a little biased he's also a great kid and i got to know him really well but Uh, He is a a sort of special, special talent and a kid who's as committed to his eating and his off-ice habits as any kid I've ever met. And is just solely focused on hockey and solely focused on on being as good as he can be. And he is a a star in the making, in my opinion.
2: It's ridiculous to think that if this guy was two inches taller and 5'11", there's no question that oh, he's yeah, he... probably in in that discussion for for yeah. third or even in up there with uh, with Lafreniere and 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 Byfield just because of his production. I mean, I haven't seen him nearly as much as anybody else has, but I saw him a few times last year and a couple times this year. And it's almost like when you watch him, he just does nothing wrong. It, it's just it's maybe not the flashiest play every time, but th- there's almost no mistakes when you see him out there because he's just doing everything.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I do not disagree. And his scoring touch has come a long way too. I think last year he was a little bit too deferential. He was playing with very good players and he always felt like this sort of rookie on his line. He was playing with two overagers last year for good stretches of the season. And, uh, he always seemed like he kind of wanted to just give the puck to them and, and be the good line mate and be the playmaker. And this year he's basically said, I'm going to be the playmaker and I'm going to be the best passer on the ice, but I'm also going to score a goal a game. So uh, that part of it has been really fun to watch because he's just been so much more assertive. And he's a, when you meet him, he's a very shy kid away from the rink, but he, he does not play like that at all.
2: Uh, looking at some of the other prospects, I think some of the more intriguing ones uh, last year, Spencer Knight went 13th overall. Uh, and we We're looking at another goalie who could possibly go higher this year in Yaroslav Askarov. Uh, how does he compare tonight uh, in that range? Do you think he goes higher? Do you think you know he'll, he'll kind of settle around that middle of the pack range in the draft for this year?
3: Uh, He's a bit of a wild card for me just because, well, there's a couple things. The first thing is that I don't tend to think that any goalie should be a sort of top 10 pick. I I have briefly considered in the last six, eight months kind of ranking Askarov in that range, but I've ultimately always felt like he was more of a middle of the first round kind of guy rather than in that top nine group that I talked about when my midseason ranking comes out. At the beginning of February, he will not be in that top nine group for me. Um, that isn't to say he won't, he may not be a t- top 10 pick. I think goalies are weird just because it, it will depend who is picking where and who is off the board. This is also a weird draft just because Drysdale is the only defenseman in that group. So I think you could have a team that either wants to move back because they want a defender or just takes a sort of leap of faith and, and grabs a defender maybe a bit too high. And I think the result of that could be – Players, a number of talented forwards slipping, and I think if that happens, you could have Askarov slip a little bit because teams think I can't pass up on one of those nine forwards or eight forwards because Drysdale is also in that group for me. Um, So yeah, Askarov's weird for me. He's also weird stylistically for me. He is a very jittery goalie. He kind of bounces around on the ice when he's uh, sort of trying to get set in his stance. He never really is set. A lot of goalies nowadays, you see them sort of down and low in their stance early on in in sequences. Uh, He's not like that. He stands very upright throughout the play and then kind of hops down into his stance. And uh, it certainly keeps him on his toes and keeps him engaged in the play and keeps him focused and helps him make some of those reactionary saves that other goalies might not make. But it also has a, a sort of side effect, which I think is that he can get beat low. Obviously, the glove hand has become a, a, a concern as well. Uh, and he can also get beat low because he's, he's not set in his stance and, and he struggles to get down into his butterfly, maybe, unlike some other goalies. So he's a weird one for me. I think he's an absolutely brilliant goalie. Um, I do think he'll be a first-round pick for sure. Uh, I just, uh, I'm not convinced that I, he would be a sort of top 15 pick for me at this
2: point. Uh, looking at the Ducks this year, goal scoring has been primarily one of their issues. Uh, if you're a team like Anaheim targeting a pure goal scorer in this draft, who, who's your number one choice for that type of role?
3: Well, I think outside of the the top two kids, I think it's probably Alexander Holtz. Holtz has just this Lethal shot. And I think one of the things that leaps out to me about Holtz is that the rest of his game has come along really nicely. He will, kind of grew up as a pure goal scorer and a winger who needed other people to get him the puck. And then he would just rip it. And, and that's kind of how he existed and how he dominated all the way up until last, last year, really. This year, I've begun to see some more elements in his game. He, he's got a lot stronger in the summer. Uh, his skating improved. He At the World Juniors, he certainly looked more confident with the puck as kind of a primary handler rather than a give-and-go guy. Uh, and then he's got arguably the best shot in the draft. So I think if you're looking for sort of a pure goal scorer, then Holtz is, is your guy. Holtz is, is probably the target.
2: I looking through... You know some of the work you've done recently and then one of the most um powerful pieces I, i've read in a while you know, i spent uh, a few months around this organization and, and know some of these people personally uh take us through writing that article on tucker tyne and 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 the niagara ice dogs and and you know everything that went around with, with that you know near fatal tragedy tragedy in, in niagara
3: yeah that was a tough one um I mean, it's one of those stories that that has to kind of get written, but you don't want to force anybody's hand or pressure anyone into doing it. So I waited a few days before reaching out to the team just to sort of give them a moment to do their scrums and do their oppressors and make sure that they had the players best interests in mind. And obviously they had games to cancel and mental health boxes to check and all of that and kind of needed to fall into place and then I reached out uh I know Billy and Joey pretty well they're uh in terms of sort of OHL personnel they're two of the people I probably know the best and uh I, I know that I knew that they would probably trust me if they were going to talk uh, sort of candidly about the about the situation and everything that happened and uh I just wanted to give them an opportunity to kind of walk someone through it because I think in, in the aftermath the a lot of the questions at that at that scrum that they did and at the press conference that they kind of hosted impromptu were about player safety and about equipment and how can we have uh, sort of improved the equipment and everything was kind of looking forward. And I think it's important in a situation like that to, to also kind of look back. And obviously it's very hard, it, particularly it was, I would imagine, for Chris Trivieri, their equipment manager who spoke to me for the story. Um, to, to sort of go back and, and w- walk through those moments. But I think it's important to highlight the people and the roles that they played. And obviously the, there's a, a negative spin to the story, which is should this kid have uh, better protection and should goalies have better protection, et cetera, et cetera. But the, I think there's also a, a sort of very touching aspect to this story, which is there are a, a series of adults who came together in a, in a, one of the most difficult situations of their lives. And ultimately saved a young man's life and um, I wanted to tell that story and we didn't want to glorify it and there were details in the story that we chose to include not to sort of sensationalize it and and how sort of vulgar it all was but just to highlight uh, the pressure that these people were under and and how quickly they had to act and how serious it really was because the the images that we all saw on Twitter and the videos that got shared and the photo of the pool of blood and all of that uh, can be jarring, and then and then you've got people who actually were sort of right there on their hands and knees dealing with the situation. So we just wanted to tell that side of the story as sensitively and and sort of carefully as we could. And uh, obviously, all the credit goes uh, and to the people who were there and and everybody that was involved in Tucker's recovery, and the, also the surgeons that operated him on, at, at St. Catherine's General Hospital and all that. So it, it's just a a remarkable story and. Uh, what really struck me about it were some of the characters that, that stepped up who didn't have the training, and, and Chris did a good job of highlighting that in our conversation too. He said, look, me and Doug Stacy, the equipment manager for the London Knights, this is our job. We're trained to do this. We've done EMT training. We've done emergency training. We've gone to school for this. This is our job. But they also had a strength coach on the ice, and they also had a 19-year-old player who'd stayed on the ice to help take off equipment and cut cut the equipment off of him and talk talk to him. And uh, all of those people—Beraldo, the kid who who stayed on the ice—those are the those are the people who are just absolutely unbelievable. And that's not to take anything away from uh, someone like Chris Tribieri, who was kind of the 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 key piece and everything that happened on the ice but uh people like baraldo and, and and some of the smaller characters who stayed to help that's just truly amazing so it, it i was very honored that they were open to to sharing and and sort of walking me through it like they did
1: no that was a, that was a really well thought out and powerful piece honestly if, if those listening or i haven't gone and check it out go and check it out it's worth the read uh scott just to, we have a couple more here before we let you go if that's all right just a i got to talk about the Leafs. I know you were watching the Leafs game tonight. Um, not a positive game so far for the Leafs, but uh, just talking about switching from Babcock to Sheldon Keith. what are some of the differences you've seen between those two? And do you think that is pretty much what has contributed to the Leafs' turnaround? Uh,
3: yes and no. I, uh, first of all, I think Sheldon... Uh, I've covered the Marlies for years and I think Sheldon is an excellent coach, both as a, as a sort of people's person and a player's coach, but also as a tactician. Um, So I'm not surprised that some of the changes he's made to the team in terms of structure and style of play and usage and relying on the top players more and uh, starting his goalies in, in sort of different routines and all of that doesn't surprise me at all. I do think though and and to Babcock's credit I do think the Leafs were due in, in terms of luck and in terms of the way that they were playing maybe for a little bit better results in that first sort of third of the season than they got I think there was a natural turn that was going to happen regardless do I think that they would have gone 15 and 4 with Mike Babcock in in the games that followed after Babcock's dismissal absolutely not I think Sheldon has this team playing a much better style in, in terms of the way they play and how fast they play and the comfort level he's given his star players to hang to the puck instead of sort of constantly moving it. One of the big things that Babcock always preached was basically when the puck hits your stick, we've got to be playing fast. And in Babcock's mind, playing fast meant moving it and, and sort of not hanging on to it and not being create, as creative as some of those players would probably have liked to. And Sheldon's idea of playing fast is – let's just have the puck all the time and let's make plays when they're there, but let's not rush anything. And let's take our time entering the zone with control and exiting the zone with control. And let's make shorter passes instead of longer stretch passes. And, um, he let's apply more pressure on the penalty kill and let's apply more pressure on the PK and, or on the power play and, let's not sit back kind of thing. Uh, And certainly that also creates naturally games like tonight's game where the Leafs lost eight four and, and looked like shit and got exposed off the rush and made a lot of mistakes because they were trying to do too much with the puck. But I ultimately think that that's the way that the Leafs have to play. And I think that they're kind of all in on what is one of the most unique approaches to building a hockey team in the NHL right now in that, they've stacked the top of the lineup with very expensive players they've tried to fill as cheaply as they can around the around the edges and they're playing a game that isn't all that physical and that just intends to sort of outskill everyone and there are a lot of people that think that that can't work in the playoffs and I absolutely disagree I think the Leafs are talented enough to win a Stanley Cup but I also think they're talented enough in the style of they play that they play unless they get good goaltending from frederick anderson that they could well lose to tampa or boston again in the first round i just think that's how tight the eastern conference is going to play and obviously the Leafs are in one of the tougher if not the toughest division in terms of escaping the division because they're going to have to play two of the i don't know four or five best teams in the league to get out of the first two rounds um but i i like everything sheldon's done he's he's it's been impressive to watch this team uh, tonight aside they they're playing the the best hockey i've seen them play in three or four in the last three or four years and obviously the decade before that was a write-off so really it's the best hockey they've played <laughs> in 15 years um but it's been it's been a lot of fun to sort of watch them go all in on this plan and now five years from now we'll get to look back and and decide whether it worked and whether it was a failed experiment or whether it was a brilliant idea from Kyle Dubas and and Sheldon Keefe and Brennan Shanahan to kind of commit and go all in on it so it's going to be great theater I think to watch the Leafs over the next two or three years as the pressure builds on them to win a cup or at least go on a sort of Eastern Conference final deep playoff run and uh, if they lose in the first round again this year, there's, the pressure's going to only continue to mount, and they've got a team to do it. It's just now putting all the pieces together, getting hot at the right time, getting good goaltending at the right time, and I think that's ultimately what the playoffs are about in the NHL nowadays. More than anything, uh, there's, there's certainly you know, only certain teams that can go all the way. There's probably only seven or eight teams that are capable of winning a Stanley Cup in the league this year, um, but uh, the Leafs are in that group, and now it's a matter of, a frederick anderson playing really well at the right time and and a little bit of luck i think that's how tight it is these days
1: what about austin matthews what a hell of a season yeah. he's having do you think he break do you think he breaks rick vives record of 54 goals
3: i think he's got a chance to challenge it he's uh he's again again he's playing the best hockey of his career right now too he uh was was sort of not brutal early in the season but he really struggled defensively I wrote a couple of pieces breaking down the video and all of the things that he was kind of doing wrong defensively and uh, there were some issues that had cropped up with him over the last couple of years where uh, the defensive play which in his draft year was said to be like he the, the comparisons were Kopitar and Jonathan Taves and he was supposed to be this defensive wizard uh, and he's always had a sort of elite ability to lift pucks off of players with his stick, but he's never actually been that great of a defensive player. And I think what's happened under Sheldon is a, he's played more. He's now playing 22, 23 minutes a night instead of 17, 18, which is naturally going to help him score more. Uh, He's always been one of the two or three best even strength goal scorers in the league, basically since he entered it. But the defensive play has, has come a long way. And he's now obviously now playing with Marner, which he, until, sheldon got brought on he had never played a regular sort of shift with mitch marner he'd always had nylander as his sort of co-pilot and everything has kind of fallen into place for him he's looked like a a completely different player and uh, i think he is going to score 50 goals and we'll see whether he can score 54 or 55
1: well that'd be just a tremendous season to cap that off with with a 54 goal season or plus but uh just some topical news here: Ray Sherrill getting canned today in the middle of the season. That's pretty mm-hmm. unprecedented for a GM to be to be booted like that. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, is that just is that really shocking to you?
3: Uh no. I mean, it's certainly a surprise in terms of the timing, but I don't think it's a surprise that it happened. Just from what I've heard about what's sort of been happening in in the Devils organization over the last couple of years um it it, it's it's been a a sort of calm chaos for a little while they had the run a couple of years ago where it felt like everything was sort of on back on track and then they got brought back down to reality after that winning streak came to an end and uh, they obviously lost in the first round that year and then things have just kind of cratered ever since then. And they've never really been able to get out of it. And there's been a lot of turnover elsewhere in the organization in terms of their analytics department and in terms of their, obviously their coaching staff earlier in the year and and nothing ever really seemed right. And then obviously the PK Subban acquisition was kind of the, the final blow in terms of just things not going as planned and the moves not panning out. And certainly they, they had obviously two first overall picks and you, you don't want to stay in the basement for too long after you've uh, sort of gone that route and moving Taylor Hall kind of signaled that, Hey, this is the end. We're, we're, we're not only back on track and back sort of in contention, but we're going back into a rebuild here. So, <coughs> excuse me. So this was kind of uh, I, I think it, I not to say I saw it coming. That's a weird thing to say, but it just something didn't feel right there in that organization. And I think this is them kind of hitting restart and and saying, okay, let's reassess what we have and go in a different direction than the one we've been going down. So uh, they've got some, they've got good young talent there. They've got Ty Smith on the way as well. They've got some good prospects. They obviously acquired a number of more impressive prospects in the Uh, Taylor Hall trade. Kevin Ball was great at the World Juniors. So there's some pieces there. They might have a good young core to move forward with, but um, I don't think Nico Hiche is going to be a sort of superstar level talent. He looks like a kid who's just going to be a kind of 60, 70 point (coughs) sort of low level first line center, but very good second line center. And they really need Jack Hughes to be more than that. And I think Jack Hughes does have a good chance to be a, a sort of star, star echelon player, but yeah, if Jack doesn't pan out as as well as people are hoping either then you've sort of you've got a long way to go still
2: all right so to to wrap things up here you mentioned you think there's about eight teams in contention for the Stanley Cup this year uh, you know a little bit past the halfway mark here if you had to give us a Stanley Cup favorite right now who who would you pick to win at all
3: Oh, that's a tough one. We just submitted our uh, midseason. We do predictions at the Athletic, where every few months, the, all of the staff had to have to answer the same poll questions, and then we do kind of big prediction pieces. And I struggled with that one. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. I'm recovering from a bit of a world junior cold here.
2: Um, <laughs> no but
3: I, I don't know. For me, I, I look at Washington and Boston still as as the two teams for me, I ultimately submitted Washington as my pick in our poll, but I strongly considered Boston. Obviously that was a week ago now and Tampa has gone on a tear. I still think Tampa has a couple of holes that could get exposed in a, in a sort of long playoff run. And obviously Boston needs to be healthy. I think if Boston's fully healthy, they're the best team in the league. Um, but Washington is just, they, they look borderline unstoppable right now. And I know, I know, to say Washington, Boston, Tampa, you're looking at three Eastern Conference teams, and then that sort of Eastern Conference bias thing <laughs> pops up. But when I look at the West, I just outside of St. Louis, and we all know how hard it is to go back to back, I just don't see a team in the West that's an obvious sort of contending level team. I think Colorado is very good, but they're also very young. Uh, and then you look down the list. I'm, I'm trying to think of who's at the top of the standings. Dallas
2: there. is up there, Dallas Vegas, up there. Calgary.
3: Arizona is having a better year than people expected. But Vegas, for me, at the start of the year, when I looked at that conference, I would have looked at Vegas and Colorado. And Vegas just hasn't really been, uh, from start to finish, the team that they should have been, in my opinion. So uh, I, I do think the Cup's going to end up coming out of the East this year. And obviously, for me, I, I, I do think it's Boston or Washington. As good as Tampa and Toronto also are, I still think it's going to be Boston or Washington.
2: Well, we'll have to see. It'd be, it'd be interesting to see Ovi get his second cup and, and, and how he'd top his celebrations after winning the first. But uh, we, we appreciate you taking the time, Scott, and coming back on the show uh, hopefully you feel better. Hopefully the Will Jr. song does not give you any more nightmares. And <laughs> yeah. uh, hopefully uh, uh, if the Ducks win the draft lottery, which would be a godsend for us right now, we'll have you back on the show to talk about what Alexis Lafreniere could mean for the Ducks moving forward.
3: Yeah, absolutely. No sweat, guys. Cheers. All
2: right. Thanks, Take care.
3: Yep, thanks.